Friends, we can resume the public worship of God by singing to his praise in Psalm 116. We're singing from the beginning of the psalm. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers he did hear. I, while I live, will call on him who bowed to me his ear. Of death the cords and sorrows did about me compass round. The pains of hell took hold on me, I grief and trouble found. Upon the name of God the Lord then did I call and say, Deliver thou my soul, O Lord, I do thee humbly pray. God merciful and righteous is, ye gracious is our Lord. God saves the meek, I was brought low, he did me help afford. O thou my soul, do thou return unto thy quiet rest, for largely, lo, the Lord to thee his bounty hath expressed. For my distressed soul from death delivered was by thee. Thou didst my morning eyes from tears, my feet from falling free. Verses full of Christian experience and full of Christian confidence. Let us sing then verses 1 to 8 of Psalm 116 to God's praise. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers he did hear.
Well, let us now call upon the name of God in prayer. Gracious and ever-blessed God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God and Father of all of those who believe in him, we seek this evening to draw near to a throne of grace with boldness, the boldness that is afforded to us through the gospel hope, we who have in ourselves no right at all to draw near to a God who is holy because we are unholy, to a God who is pure because we are impure, and yet we look to one who is pure and who is holy, and by his merits, his pure heart and his clean hands, even through the person and work of the Lord and Saviour of his people, Jesus Christ, we draw near to one who is a consuming fire, and we are able to do so, yes, with reverence and with godly fear, but also with boldness, as drawing near to a father who loves all of his, old, his, old child, his own children, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come then confessing your sin, but confident that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And even this evening, if our heart condemn us, we know that God is greater than our heart and that he knows all things. And so, Lord, we give thanks for the Church of Christ, for a body of people who have been delivered from darkness into life, as we were singing together, whose souls have been delivered from death, whose eyes have been delivered from tears, and whose feet have been delivered from falling. We give thanks then for the confidence that is ours in, in Jesus Christ, that we are not our own, but that we belong to him in body and in soul, that we can say with the apostle, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live according to the faith of Jesus Christ, who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so, Lord, we pray that as thy people, that we would know more of that blessedness, that confidence, that joy and that peace, which has been given to us in the covenant of grace, that we would live as children redeemed, bought from the bondage of and the slavery of sin, and redeemed into the royal family of Almighty God, that we have now the Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother, that we have the Holy Spirit as our comforter, and that we have the Father as our Father. O Lord, we pray then that in the midst of all of the trials and troubles that accompany the Christian life, in the midst of all the disappointments and discouragements that may be ours in a world that has been polluted by sin, that we would learn more and more to look not to ourselves, but to be looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, as we run the race with patience. Meet with us then, Lord, even this evening. Give us assurance in our faith. Give us confidence uh, to be going on, to be continuing in the way, 
not turning to the left nor to the right, nor looking back, but uh, to be going from strength to strength, unwearied in the way, until our course reaches its end and we are brought safely home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, which, as thy, the apostle said, is far better. And so, Lord, we pray for those who are this evening going through difficulties, trials and troubles that perhaps very few others are aware of. We give thanks for the promise of Scripture which says to us that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the floods, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, uh, I will be, be with you also, and the flame shall not kindle upon you. O Lord, what blessings are ours in Jesus Christ, and we are not deserving of the least of them. With Jacob of old, we can say, I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies. And yet, as we come to the pages of Scripture, and as we come to hear the gospel, we are continually reminded that the Lord our God is gracious and he is merciful, long-suffering and slow to wrath, and mercy plenteous. And so we ask the Lord this evening to come into our midst, that we might know something of the company of the Saviour, the one who has told us that where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. And so, Lord, be in the midst of us. Be speaking to us through the word. Give us a love for the scriptures and the promises that they, they make to us. Give us a love particularly for the Lord our God, that we might love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Grant that our Christianity would not be merely a Christianity of the head and not even merely a Christianity of the heart, but that it might be a Christianity of the hands and of the feet, that as we believe, so we would live, as we profess to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we would walk according to the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that the gospel might go forth here and in other places throughout our nation and throughout the world where Jesus Christ is magnified, where sinners are called to repent and to believe the gospel, where saints are called to follow after holiness, that the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit might be evident in these places. Lord, together we confess our great need in these days. Oh, we need to know our need in every day, and yet how evident it is when the day around us becomes darker, when fewer appear to believe even the cardinal truths of Scripture, when men are turning after lies, worshipping the creature more than the creator. And it is little wonder to us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold and who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Lord, we pray that a day might come when the church will become bolder, when Christians might not fear to speak the truth and to live the truth. And Lord, we need grace to live it. We struggle to live it. We are called to such great things. We have been transformed by the Holy Spirit so that what we are called to, we are able to do with the help of Almighty God. And yet, how we fail, we long to be more sacrificial in our lives. We long to know more of what it is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. We long to be spending more time in prayer, 
learning more in the Word, doing more good, encouraging more people, speaking to more who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins. We long to feel the burden of sinners on the way to a lost eternity. Lord, how cold and how hard we often are, how selfish we often are. O Lord, make us more Christ-like. Make us more holy. Make us more consecrated to thee and to the church of Christ in this day. Build us up, Lord. We see our weakness and we see our inability. And yet our God is a great God. One who is able to do and who has done wonderful things, great things in his church throughout the ages. One who has blessed the word of God as it is preached and as it is lived out. And Lord, we come to the same God and we believe the same things as former generations believed. We see a nation in the same state, dead in sin and needing the gospel. And we pray then, Lord, as we see our own inability and our own weakness, we pray, Lord, move, move in our day. Rouse up the church of Christ to prayer, to repentance, to turn from our sin and to turn to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Lord, do these things for us, we ask, and grant that we and our children and our children's children and generations yet to come in Inverness, in Scotland, might praise and magnify the Lord. We read in scripture of the candlestick being removed from some areas, the church dying out in some towns and cities. Oh, we pray that it might not be the case in our towns and in our cities. For we look around us and we see churches closing and we see fewer and fewer gathering together even on the Lord's day to worship the only living and true God. Oh, turn the tide, Lord. Reverse what we see around us and grant that Christ would be in our country building his church so that the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Continue with us then, Lord, we ask, and bless us and keep us and apply to us the truths of Scripture and all of their power and grant us more love for the Saviour and forgive for sin for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let us sing again, this time in Psalm 61. We're singing in the Sing Psalms version of the psalm, verses 1 to 5. O oh, hear my urgent cry, my God, and listen to my plea. From earth's remotest bounds I call, when my heart faints in me. Uh, the Psalter has that so powerfully, when my heart is overwhelmed and when it is perplexed. That is often how the believer feels and we'll think about that, something of that this evening. And the prayer when the heart is perplexed is, O God, conduct me to the rock that's higher far than I. And of course, the rock points to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the rock of our salvation. For you're my refuge from the foe, my tower of strength on high. O let me dwell within your tent forever there to live. O for the shelter of your wings, the refuge which they give. For you have heard my vows, O God, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name 
continually. We're going to sing then verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 61 to God's praise. Oh, hear my urgent cry, my God, and listen to my plea. Let us now read God's word as we find it in the scriptures of the Old Testament and the Song of Solomon. And we're reading from chapter 2, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I'm going to read this whole chapter. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the doors of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, 
Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Amen. We pray that the Lord would bless his own word to us and to his name be all the praise and all the glory. Let us sing then again in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, reading from the beginning of the psalm, I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. He took me from a fearful pit and from the mighty clay. And on a rock he set my feet, establishing my way. We perhaps often apply the fearful pit and the mighty clay to the unbeliever before he is converted. And, and that is a, is a helpful application, but it often applies to the believer as well. And probably David was a believer in the situation that he's writing of here. We can find ourselves in these fearful circumstances. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. Our God to magnify, many shall see it and shall fear, and on the Lord rely. O blessed is the man whose trust upon the Lord relies, respecting not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. O Lord my God, full many are the wonders thou hast done. Thy gracious thoughts to us were far, above all thoughts are gone. In order none can reckon them, to thee if them declare. And speak of them, I would, they more than can be numbered are. Let us sing then verses 1 to the end of the double verse marked 5 of Psalm 40 to God's praise. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear.
Well, now with a view to God's blessing, if you would turn back with me to the portion of Scripture which we read in the Song of Solomon in chapter 2, we can take our text this evening from verse 14. O my dove in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the hole, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. In this book, we have a picture of the marital love that exists between Christ and his church. There are some who dispute that. There are some who say it's just essentially a human love poem. And I'm not going to spend time arguing against that. Um, And if that is what you feel about the book, then there are books that I can recommend to you, or we can perhaps talk about it after the service. Perhaps you could begin by reading the book written by your former minister, Royal Company, which deals with it in a little bit of detail at the start of the book. But many of the Lord's people in the history of the Reformed Church have seen in this song uh, the great affection that exists between Christ and his People. Robert Murray McShane, for example, he said that this book, it contains the tenderest breathings of the believer's heart towards the Savior and the tenderest breathings of the Savior's heart towards the believer. So here we have the church speaking to Christ about her spiritual experience, the highs and the lows, and we have Christ speaking to the church And you have this, of course, in the picture of Solomon himself, who is the king and his wife, and the way that they address each other, the way that the wife so often goes astray, and the way that Solomon himself chases after her and assures her of his love. Now, when we come to consider verse 14, most believe that... uh, we have here, oh my dove in the clefts of the rock, the speaker is Christ himself, or the speaker is the king. And the king is addressing his wife. Christ is is addressing his church as, as the dove. Some people will reverse that, but most are agreed that this is Christ speaking. Sometimes in this book, you have headings. You can see it in the ESV here, he speaking, she speaking, and so on. And these can be helpful, but they're not in the original text, and actually they can be misleading. Because you see here that from verse 3 onwards, it is she who is speaking. It is the church who is speaking. It is the church who says, oh, my dove. But some translations, I think the New King James Version particularly, puts verse 14 and some other verses in brackets, as if in speech brackets, this is the, the, the woman who is speaking, but she is telling us what Christ said to her. So the church is here telling us that Christ said to her, O oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the stairs, and, and so on. So Christ is here addressing his church. That is the majority of you. I think it makes most sense of the context as well. But he is addressing her in the midst of a spiritual winter. We see in verses 8 to 13, a description of that winter, uh, a winter of the soul, 
for the church, for the believer. And Christ comes leaping over the mountains and assuring his, his bride, his church, that the winter is past. But it's important that we retain that thought of winter, spiritual winter, spiritual coldness, distance between Christ and his church and Christ addressing the church and Christ addressing the believer tonight and saying, oh, my dove. So as we consider this verse this evening together for a short time, I want us to, to particularly notice four things. And the first thing that I want us to notice is the name that Christ uses to describe his church. He says, oh, my dove. Now, that sounds very beautiful. It sounds very poetic. But what is a dove? Well, as far as I can make out, a dove is essentially a pigeon. That's what a dove is. And if this said, oh, my pigeon, it wouldn't sound as good. The, the word dove is a German, an ancient Germanic word. And the word pigeon is a, is a French word. But they were essentially describing the same thing. Now, there are different types of dove, different types of, of pigeon. We often think of a dove as smaller. We sometimes think of a dove as white. And the pigeon, basically the things that you see walking about in Renaissance Center, making a mess. Um, but basically, they are the same thing. And I don't think we can say here that Christ has in view just the pretty white thing. I think that if we want to understand this properly, we need to understand that it is essentially a pigeon that, that Christ has in view here. And that's what he uses to describe the church. Why? Why is the church described as a dove? Well, the simple answer is we cannot be sure why the church is described as a dove. And the reason we can't be sure is that actually this word dove is used in, in many ways, or the picture of a dove is used in many ways throughout Scripture. What we can do is think about these ways, and we can perhaps apply them to the believer. And it's often the case that we come to something like this, and we say, well, what does dove mean here? It's not unlikely that it means more than one thing, and that there are various pictures that we are supposed to have in view as we read these words. So how is a dove used in scripture. Well, you remember in Hosea, the prophet says that Ephraim, speaking of the, the northern tribes of Israel, is like a silly dove without heart. It's used for simplicity, it's used for folly, for, for foolishness, and it's used for discouragement as well. And again, that, that's often how the church is. The church can be, the, the believer, you know yourself, that the foolishness of your own heart, you know how silly you can be in some of your thoughts, in some of your doubts, in some of your actions. Without heart, you know how easy it is for you to lose heart, for you to become discouraged. We read elsewhere of those who trembled as a dove. Speaks of how, how scared a dove can be. And, and of course, a dove is, a, generally speaking, a small bird. Uh, many predators who would love to get their hands on a dove. And so, as we'll see, they, they hide themselves in the cliffs in order to keep away from their predators, in order to keep their young away from predators. But there is this fear, there is this trembling, there is this shaking. And again, often the church can be beset by fear. You can be beset by fears in your own Christian life. Sometimes these fears are 
legitimate, sometimes they are not legitimate. So there are these weaknesses that perhaps Christ has in view. The dove is also known for, for mourning. Really across the world, the, the cry of the dove is seen to be a, a sorrowful cry. Um, many of you will have heard it. It sounds a wee bit, some arguably a wee bit like an owl. Um, but it's, it's not... Throughout the year, you can hear beautiful birds singing, really, at different times. And there's something pleasant in it. We can't really say that, that the cry of a pigeon is pleasant at all. There is something sorrowful about it. And the ancients would say, well, part of the reason for that was that doves, and I think we know this, scientists will tell us this, that doves are monogamous. They, they, they mate once with, with one partner. When that partner dies, they, they don't mate again. And they are known for this sorrowful cry when a separation becomes between them and their partner. And so this is picked up on in Scripture as well. We read that when Hezekiah found out that he was sick, he mourned as a dove. He cried like a dove cries. Uh, we read about Israel in Ezekiel chapter 7, that Israel shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning everyone for his iniquity. So when the church in the northern tribes of Israel had sinned against the Lord, they would each of them mourn because of the sins that they had committed. And of course, that is a true picture of the Lord's people as well. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Rather, on the contrary, Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean? Is that talking about the bereaved? Well, if the bereaved mourn in the Lord and, and look to him for their comfort, we can be assured that they'll find that comfort. But there's more to it than that. It's speaking of spiritual mourning, a mourning for sin, a sorrow for our iniquities and our shortcomings. And that is true of every believer, every one of the Lord's people. We are a people who should rejoice more than anybody else. We should be a happy people. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. A happy people, but at the same time, a mourning people. People who mourn over sin in ourselves, mourn over sin in the world, mourn over, mourn over sin and unbelief in those around us. And so, as the dove mourns, the church will mourn. But, as you know, the picture of the dove is used positively as well. It's used for, as a picture of peace. Um, you remember that Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless or peaceful as doves. When the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was being baptized, descended upon him, it descended upon him as a, in the form of a, of a dove. We often think of when the dove went out from Noah's ark and came back with a leaf in its mouth. It was as if it was saying there is peace on the earth. It was the bearer of, of good news. And so, friends, as the Holy Spirit um, was a picture of the dove descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are peacemakers. We are those who have peace. We are those who love peace. The dove is also a picture of purity. You remember that the dove was one of the clean animals. It was one of the animals that could be offered as a sacrifice by those who were poor and couldn't afford a larger animal. It was 
clean. And it's actually used in that sense in this book. In chapter 5 and verse 2, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. That word perfect one is used elsewhere to mean my undefiled, unspoilt by sin. And a dove is a picture of that. Not just of peace, but of purity. You remember the first time that the dove went out from Noah's ark. Second time it came back with a leaf. Remember the first time it, it, came out, it went out. What did it do? Well, it came back. Why did it come back? Because the raven didn't come back. The raven was quite happy. Why was the raven happy? Why did it come back if there, was no, if there were no leaves growing, if there was no grass, if there was no dryness? Many of the commentators will say it was, the raven was an unclean animal and it would have been feeding on the carcasses, on the death that was floating about. The dove as a clean animal wouldn't do that. And that is a picture of the believer. The world, friends, the unbeliever, they will feed on the death that is in society, the sin and the unbelief that our world breeds. But the believer will not, or, or certainly should not. Coming back to the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. And we know, friends, as a church, we know as believers that we're not pure as we would like to be. But we also know this, that we seek after purity. We seek after holiness. The good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I do. But the fact is, I want to do good. I want to do the Lord's will. I delight to do the Lord's will, to follow after purity. That is true of Christ's church and of his people. A dove is also used as a picture of beauty. We might not think that in the way that we think of pigeons or doves, but it is used in that way sometimes in Scripture. For example, Psalm 68 and verse 13. Uh, the Lord is speaking to his church and he's saying, though you've been lying among the pots, amongst the filth, amongst the rubbish, though you've been lying there, yet shall you be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her fe feathers with yellow gold. And so the dove is used as a picture of beauty sometimes. And we can say that perhaps, and we'll see this maybe later on, but perhaps Christ has that in view as well. The dove is in hiding, but Christ wants to see her beauty. We read in chapter 4 and verse 7, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's how Christ sees his church. It's not the way that we see ourselves, but it's the way that he sees his work in us, and it's the way that he sees his new creation. And so there are all of these things, and which of them exactly did the writer have in mind? Does Christ have in mind? I can't rightly say. But certainly they're all used of the church. Um, but before we move on from that, it, it is significant that we're not just reading about any dove here. But he says, oh, my dove. My dove. It is Christ's dove, his own, his beloved dove. What we read in verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. And that's how Christ sees you. you. You perhaps think of yourself as a dove and it's all the negative things that come up. It's the silliness, it's the fear, it's the folly, all of these things. But Christ views his own people as his own. He views you as his own. And it's not even just my dove, it's, it's oh my dove. 
And when that word oh is used in scripture, it is used for desire. It is used for feeling. That's the way that he feels about his church. Oh, my dove. So we have the name. Secondly, let us notice where this dove is. The place. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff. So that word cleft is basically a crevice. You think if, you, if you've seen sea cliffs, then you often see where there are cracks in the cliff and, and almost caves, essentially. And you do, if you've walked around, certainly at particular times of the year, you will see birds in there. Uh, the word cliff here, many of you will remember uh, in the authorized version, it is the secret place of the stairs. And actually the word stairs there is, is what it says. That's, that's the literal sense of it. It's very poetic. But it's essentially thinking about the, piece, the pieces of the rock of the cliff that jut out and almost look like stairs because of the different jutting out pieces. So the, the stairs, the, the, the crags, the cliffs. And what you have is a picture of, of the doves hiding, hiding in there, hiding in the cliff, hiding in the really narrow places that the bigger animals can't get to, hiding themselves so that nobody can see them, hiding themselves to protect themselves, hiding themselves to protect their young from danger, taking, taking shelter from the weather, all of these things, hiding away. And it's natural for a dove to do that. It's natural for different birds to do that. Now, what are we to take from that? Some say that this is a picture of those who hide in Christ so that Christ is himself the rock. Um, And I'm not sure that there is much mileage in that because most people say that rather it's a people who aren't hiding in Christ but who are hiding from Christ. Most take it to be a picture of fear, a picture of shame, a picture of timidity. Just as the dove is too scared to expose itself to the weather, to expose itself from the dangers outside, so the Christian can be scared, scared to come out, scared to expose ourselves. And I think that the reason that most side with this is really because of the context. And the context in verses 8 to 13, as we've seen, is the winter of the soul. Um, the Christian in the, midst of, in the midst of a spiritual wilderness, knowing spiritual barrenness, because the king has withdrawn from her. Jesus Christ has withdrawn. And between Christ and his church, you have the mountains. You notice in verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. Verse 17, um, we read of the young stag. Here it's cleft mountains. I think in the authorized version and other versions, it's the mountains of Beaver. And that word Beaver means separation. The mountains of separation. Sometimes we can feel like that. Sometimes we can feel like we're here and then you've got a great high hills and mountains and Christ is on the other side. And we feel the distance between us. We've made a profession of faith. We're called Christians by other people. We consider ourselves to be, the, to be Christians. But Christ seems so far away. And the blessedness and the joy and the nearness which once we knew really feels like a thing of the past. Because Christ has withdrawn from us. Why does Christ withdraw from us? And he does sometimes. 
Well, there are different reasons why Christ can withdraw from his people. Of course, Christ dwells in you. So in that sense, he never withdraws. And if he comes into your life and into your soul and dwells in your heart, he doesn't up sticks and leave. He doesn't do that. And yet, the scriptures tell us that we can quench the Holy Spirit, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, so that there is a sense in which he withdraws from us, so that we don't feel his presence, we don't feel his nearness in the same way. Normally, when God chastises his children for sins, for wandering away from him, that's often one of the, the tools that he uses. He withdraws from, us, withdraws from us in order that we might become hungry for him again. Why does Christ sometimes withdraw? Why are there seasons of barrenness in your own Christian experience? Well, let me say a few things. Firstly, sometimes he does it to test us. There's no reason at all apart from that he's testing us in order to strengthen us. You see that, for example, in the book of Job. What sin had Job done in order to make the Lord withdraw from him in the way that he did? Well, arguably no sin at all. But the Lord was testing him. And the Lord was doing things that Job himself did not understand in order to teach and to strengthen the church throughout the ages. Maybe the Lord has done that with yourself. But there are others, and, and a distance comes in between themselves and Christ because of disappointment that they feel themselves. Disappointment with God, with what God has done or, or what he hasn't done, with a hard providence in your life, an illness, a bereavement, a loss of work, whatever it might be. And you become kind of just disillusioned and... Well, you think, well, I didn't think that God would do that, that he would um, deal with me in that way, that he would leave me in that situation, that he would allow me to be humiliated in that way. And you can kind of retreat into yourself, hide yourself from the Lord. And so you put the distance in. We can become a swell. We can become disillusioned, not, not with God himself, but with the church, uh, with people in the church, we can be let down, we can feel let down, let down by people, people who we expected more from, people who were in office, people who were ministers, and we see this happening and that happening and that shortcoming and that scandal. And we can kind of retreat and we can hide. And uh, that can often be the case. The third thing is we, we can retreat and put a distance between ourselves and Christ because of sin. Um, you remember sinning against your parents or grandparents or whoever it might have been when you were younger. You remember how hard it was when you were found out to look them in the eye. You remembered how easy it was to go up to your room to hide or to go outside and not to come back home until things had blown over. And even then, it was hard to look them in the eye. We can be like that with the Lord as well. And you have pictures throughout this book of, of the sin of, of the bride. Saying in chapter 1, verse 6, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked down upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I had responsibility over souls, many take this. The souls in my family, the souls in my circle of friends, the souls in my church. And yet how careless I've been with my own soul. Uh, you see again in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, sorry, verse 15, 
catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vines. May you apply that to the little sins, the little sins that get into my life and yours and put a distance between me and Christ. Sin does that. Sin does that. If we want the nearness of Christ, we need the distance of sin. We need to be putting our back to it. And that's, of course, what repentance is, isn't it? To put our back to sin and our face to Jesus Christ, to have been facing towards sin and to turn 180 degrees towards the Lord again. So sin puts a distance between us. The, third, the, the final thing, or sorry, the fourth thing is sloth, laziness. Um, for example, we have in chapter 5, the beginning of that chapter in verse 2, the Christ wanting in to the, the fellowship of his bride. I slept, verse 2, but my heart was awake. This is the bride speaking. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Christ knocking at the door. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew. My locks with the drops of the night. The king has been knocking at the door, wanting entrance in, wanting fellowship with his sweet bride. I had put off my garment. The bride answers, I put my clothes off. I'm in my pajamas, basically, is what she's saying. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? And then when she arises in verse 5, um, he is no longer there. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Why? Because she had wasted time. She was lazy. She was slothful. So it can be with ourselves. You know, we wonder, why don't I feel Christ near to me like I used to? Well, why indeed? Why indeed? Are you seeking him like you used to? Are you reading the scriptures like you used to? Are you praying like you used to? You know, in many ways, there are many complicated things in the scriptures. But the Christian life isn't difficult, really. If you read, I remember Martin Lloyd Jones saying that um, uh, the Christian life isn't complicated. You read about the great saints of old, men and women of God, and really six or seven things characterized every single one of them. There was nothing confusing as such about their lives. And he said, it's sin that confuses. It's the life of the sinner that is complicated and confused because of sin. But the Lord's people, it's, it's relatively straightforward. You, you live according to the scriptures. You love the word. You rely on the Lord in prayer. When the Lord's people meet together, you are there. Whether it's on a Sabbath morning or evening, whether it's on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, you're there because you're a Christian and you're a member of the church. You are there. When it's a fellowship, you want to be there. All of these things, that they're not rocket science, are they? They're not difficult. They're relatively straightforward. And sometimes we can be lazy. We cannot read our Bible as we're supposed to. I remember as a young Christian being told, as you begin and as you go on and as you end your course in this world as a Christian, see that every morning of your life you read the Bible and pray. And see that every night of your life you read the Bible and pray. And you do it religiously. Religion's a bad word in our day in many churches. It shouldn't be. We need religion in that we need discipline. 
do these things. And if we're not doing these things, if we're lazy in these things, how can we complain that Christ is distant from me, that I don't know his nearness anymore, he doesn't speak to me in his word anymore, when we're not coming to him in the same way that we used to, when we're not doing the basics. So Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's sin that confuses. The Christian life isn't complicated. But the fact is that Christ can be dif- distant. And you can be there in the cleft. You can be there in the wilderness, in a solitary place. And, and you're not in the world. It's not as if you've fallen into any sort of awful sin. It's not as if you're not going to church anymore, but you've just got no boldness anymore, no joy. You don't know the, the nearness of Christ in the way that you used to. Perhaps you feel like that this evening. There is one more application here, and it's, it's that of fear. Some are distant from Christ because of fear. And I want to apply this particularly to you who are perhaps on the fringes and experiencing maybe the beginnings, the seedlings of grace in your soul. And you notice in yourself that you're hearing the word in a new way, that sermons are hitting you in a way that they didn't used to hit you. And, and your ears have been opened to a large extent. Sometimes you feel your heart sore. You feel irresistibly drawn to Christ, to his church, to the means of grace. The world to you is growing cold. Your interest in it is dwindling. You feel almost your ties are, your ties are severing or you want to sever them. But instead of joy, which is the Christian experience, you find yourself in this kind of no man's land, in a solitary place, and doubts and fears begin to come in, and you say, well, I know things are changing, but how can I be the Lord's? How can I be a Christian when I am what I am? When there are these, when I have a past like I have, when I've sinned like I've sinned, and you say, well, how can he love me? How can he see me as a dove, undefiled? What with my sin, with my weakness, with my ignorance, with my unworthiness? And you're there, and you're between a rock and a hard place, and you're not what you were, but you're not what you want to be. And you've got no peace or joy either. And still there is this distance when you just want Christ for yourself. I wonder if you're there. I wonder, young folk, are you there? Well, let us thirdly see the request. And we have it as we move on in this verse. Uh, We have the name, the place, and the request. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Let me see your face firstly. What this is, is a call for the believer to come out of hiding. Um, I read recently that, uh, how was it put? No, no metaphor walks on four legs. Every metaphor breaks down somewhere. And of course, there's a sense in which this metaphor breaks down because it wouldn't be a good thing for the dove to come out of the cleft of the rock because that's where the dove belongs, and that's where the dove protects itself. And there's a reason for it to be there, and it's good for it to be there. But it's not good for the Christian to be there. And what we have here is a call for the Christian to come out of hiding. A call, in fact, more than a call, it's an imperative. Let me see your face. It's a command to show yourself, to show yourself to the Lord. You see, Christ doesn't want his dove to be unseen. He doesn't want you to live in fear. He doesn't want you to live in shame. He wants to see you. 
For you to live in fear, to live in shame, is, is a denial of the union that exists between Christ and his bride, where the two become one flesh. It is a denial of the marriage. For a man to stay away from his wife or a wife from her husband is a denial of, of the oneness, the unity that exists between them. And so Christ says, let me see your face. Don't live in fear. Don't live at a distance. We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And he's saying to you, come with boldness to me. Come with boldness to a throne of grace. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. And so, friend, if you're a discouraged believer here tonight, and there are many discouraged believers in our day for different reasons, but if you're one of them, know this, that Jesus Christ wants to see your face. He wants you to stop hiding. He wants you to return to himself. If you're a backslider, and there was a day when once you, you did think yourself a Christian, perhaps you even professed Jesus Christ, and, and really, perhaps people know it, perhaps they don't know it, but you've been living it at distance from him. And you've been called, and you haven't really been living it as a Christian at all. And he's saying, let me see your face. Come back to me. Or perhaps you're a secret believer. Um, and was it J.C. Ryle who said that the secret believer can never live for long because either the secret will kill the believer or the believer will kill the secret. But you might be here in that short period in which a secret believer can exist and you're toing and froing and wondering what to do and when to do it and the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you in his word, let me see your face. Let me see your face. Hold back no longer, don't hide anymore. I want to see your face. And he says, let me hear your voice. You see, when we're discouraged, when we feel that distance between ourselves and Christ, if we're honest, we lose our boldness. We, we lose our voice. It becomes more difficult to pray. If we're honest, it even becomes difficult to attend church, certainly to speak to people in church or to have any sort of honest spiritual conversation with, with them because a barrier comes up, a barrier between ourselves and a barrier between God. And we begin to say, well, how can I pray? How can I, for the men, how can I pray at a prayer meeting? How can I go to church? Um, how can I boldly speak out for Jesus Christ? How can I even go on my knees beside my bed with nobody but myself and himself, with, with, with all of the, the, the shortcomings in my life, with all the coldness of my heart? How can I do it? I'm the last person that God wants to hear. You ever felt that? You ever got down on your knees and felt, well, why does, why does God want to hear me? Friends, that's not the case. Scriptures are so clear that he will regard the prayer of the destitute and that he will not despise their prayer. We sometimes feel destitute. We sometimes feel that, that we've got nothing to give and that God will despise our prayer, but he won't. You know, our silence can make God angry. God can be angry with you. He can be angry with the believer in the same way that a father can be angry with a son or a daughter that he loves. God can be angry with us. We have to remember that. 
And that's why he chastises us. Our silence can make God angry, but our sincere prayers will never make God angry. Never. He wants to hear your prayers. He wants to hear you sing. He wants to hear you witness for himself. He wants to hear your voice. And the time is going, so I'm going to move on finally to, to the reason for all of this. And in many ways, this is the most shocking of all, because he says, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. The voice of a dove is anything but sweet to most people. I remember somebody once who had every morning at five in the morning, a couple of pigeons sit upon his roof and cry out for the next two or three hours until he got up. And for this particular person, the voice of the pigeon was anything, anything but sweet. And to be honest for ourselves, is the voice of a pigeon sweet? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And we can probably say the same of our prayers. Often we stutter through our prayers. We're not eloquent as we would like to be. The words don't come as we would like to come. The, the thoughts don't move swiftly. And we, we, we faint and we fail and we come short as we pray. Some of you, if you pray pub publicly and you stood up to pray and then you sit down and you're, you're utterly in turmoil because of how poor you were in prayer. Um, often our prayers turn into nothing but groanings, groanings that cannot be uttered, so that we haven't really got words at all. And we think, well, how pathetic I am. How pathetic I am in prayer. And yet, yet, the prayers of the Lord's people are sweet to him. He loves to hear the ugly, dove-like voices of his own children he loves to hear you confess your sin with tears in your eyes. He loves to hear you repent at the throne of grace. He loves to hear you praise him and tell him that you love him and that you want to serve him. He loves to hear these things. These things are sweet to him. It's often said that the devil hates to see you on your knees. And he does. But the father rejoices to see you on your knees. And he rejoices to hear you call out to himself, even in your broken, stuttering kind of way, because your voice is sweet to him. And your prayers ascend to him through the golden censer that is Jesus Christ who purifies all of our prayers. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Thy countenance is comely, as the authorized version put it. It is your face is beautiful to me, he says. And again, we think, well, how can this be? Because sin has so disfigured me. I am disfigured by sin. You remember what Isaiah said in his description of Judah, and really in his description of every single one of us. He said, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. It's a picture of somebody who is battered and who is bruised and who is in such a mess that you almost want to just keep your distance from them. And that's how we feel about ourselves. That's how we feel that we are. I remember my own old minister in Ness giving a picture of um, Lazarus. Lazarus in, his gra in the grave and 
Jesus saying, well, take the stone away, and those around saying, well, and it was the authorized version that he was quoting, behold, is it by now he stinketh. He stink, He stinks because of the corruption that's set into the body. And he said that's how the believer often sees himself, as stinking because of sin, because of what, a, what sin has done to us. That's how we feel about ourselves. That's really who we are. And yet the Christian today has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. So that the beloved can say concerning her, Arise, my love, my fair one. I see you as fair. I see you as beautiful. And come away with me. Because the sin which has made us so ugly, he has blotted it out. He has put it behind his back. He has cast it into the depths of the sea. How important for us, friends, to remember that. That he has beheld no iniquity in Jacob. Neither has he seen any perverseness in Israel. How? Is he blind? There's iniquity in Jacob, I can assure you. There's perverseness in Israel, in the people of God. But he doesn't see it because he has clothed it in the righteousness of his son. And all of our sin has been wiped away. I am black but comely, the church says in chapter 1. Black in our own eyes, sinful in our own eyes, but comely in the eyes of Christ. And when you've been in a spiritual winter, it is not your comeliness that you see, that you're aware of. It is your blackness, your sinfulness. And how wise is Jesus Christ, the all-wise, the only wise God, in whom is hid all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And so he comes just when we need it, just when we feel at our most black, at our most cold, at our most sinful, and he says to you, you are my dove, and your voice is sweet to me, and your countenance is comely. And the king is here, and he is deciding your beauty. He is deciding your beauty. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's how Christ beholds his bride. Friend, the time is gone. Are you discouraged? In the faith tonight, have you been paralyzed by disappointment, disillusionment? Do you need to hear that the Lord Jesus Christ desires to see you, to hear you, that he loves to see you, and he says, come to me. Will you come to him? What about you who are backslidden? How important for you to know that Jesus Christ is in his love, calling you to, to repent of your sin, you're still in it and to return to himself he wants you to hear he wants to hear you confessing your sin sorrowing over it and coming to the one who is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he's saying come to me let me see your face let me hear your voice or are you here and i do close with this are you here and you're scared to come out on the Lord's side for the first time. You're scared to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Scared to tell people, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a friend, a colleague. Scared to come out to the prayer meeting. Scared to profess faith, to sit at the Lord's table. Well, if you're the Lord's, he wants to see your face 
and he wants to hear your voice, he says to you, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the stairs, let me, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your countenance is comely. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, how patient thou art with us. How long-suffering is Jesus Christ, that he still loves his church despite all that she is, all of her failings and all of her shortcomings. O Lord, we give thanks and we seek wholeheartedly to return to the one who calls us to return to him, that he might return to us, the one who has torn but who promises to heal again, and the one who says that if we draw near to him, that he will draw near to us. Bless us then, Lord, as we conclude, and forgive us for our sin, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let us conclude then by singing to God's praise in Psalm 45, the first version of the psalm, and verse 13. And again, the daughter of the king here is a picture of the church of Christ. And it's a picture of a wedding, the marriage between Christ and his church. Behold, verse 13, the daughter of the king, all glorious is within. And with embroideries of gold, her garments wrought, have been talking about her wedding garments. She shall be brought unto the king in robes with needle wrought. Her fellow virgins following, that is the bridesmaids, shall unto thee be brought. They shall all be brought. They shall be brought with gladness great and mirth on every side into the palace of the king. And there they shall abide. Let us sing then verses 13 to 15. Psalm 45, to God's praise, behold the daughter of the king, all glorious is within.